Heavenly Father, we love you, and we desire to hear from you <clears throat> in the middle of this, this season that we've been going through with all of the different things that are going on in the world right now and in our country. We want to hear your voice. We want to hear your word. That's what we need the most. And so my prayer, my earnest prayer for the people of Risen Hope and for our community in the greater Seattle area and really for the entire world is that we would hear your word and that that word would take root in our souls and that we would live and enjoy your glory. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. That was the first three verses of the book of, I, or the, of Isaiah 55. Um, and it's this passage where God is speaking through the, the prophet to his people, to, to you and to me. And he's telling us to come. He's telling us to, to buy from him wine without money or price. He's, he's calling us and telling us to stop pursuing things in this world that will never satisfy and to come to him so that our souls may live. That's the plea of God to his people. And it's, it's the plea of God to a world that is bankrupt and thirsty. And this plea comes from a loving God, not out of the ordinary, not as an exception to the rule, but it is in some way, shape, or form on every single page of this book. He is saying, come to me and drink. Come to me and drink without paying any money. Just receive who I am, God says, that your soul may live. And it's the same plea that as we turn to this wedding feast that we've been in for the last two weeks that we now see come to a, a point. It's this plea from God that we see take center stage. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to John 2, verse 1. God willing, this will be the, the last time we look at this specific passage, and then next week we'll move on. John 2, verses 1 through 12 is what we're reading. <clears throat> so it says, on the third day, you're going to be familiar with this because we've been through this a few times now, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars, therefore the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out 
and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of Jesus's signs that he did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And then after this, he, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. So at I have two really, I'm blessed with two really clever kids. Um, and uh, of course, in this season, I'm at home with them all day long. Uh, so I get to see all of their cleverness. One thing I've noticed about my son is that he's very quiet all day long, very quiet throughout the entire course of the day. <laughs> but then at night, he isn't. <laughs> uh, he is the most talkative and social person I know at night. He will just sometimes just burst into our room with facts and observations and anecdotes that he has. And this last week, he, he told me something that, that he's been thinking about questions. And uh, I'm like, what questions? Which is really, a, if you know my son, a conversation trap, uh, which is good because I enjoy talking to him. But he responds with this list. He, he tells me, aliens ask, what are you? Strangers ask, who are you? Friends ask, how are you? And overprotective parents ask, where are you? But philosophers, he says, ask, why are you? And I found this incredibly insightful because he's dead on about all of those. I'm an overprotective parent, so I know that one. But the last question he states there, what philosophers ask is, is right. And it's not only true about philosophers, to be perfectly honest, it's a question that really every human being in the world must ask at some point in time. Why are we here? Why do we exist? And for the Christian, this question of why should not only form uh, our understanding of the world around us and who we are in that world and, and what our worldview should be, but this should inform how we engage the scriptures, how we look at this book, how we read the words that are on it and understand. We should ask, why is it that God inspired these specific words, this verse, this story? What was he going after? Why? And as we go into this last journey in, in the wedding at Cana, um, where Jesus turns water into wine, according to what John's written here, and it was his first sign, this manifestation of his glory, where he communicates his worth, his beauty, and his majesty to his disciples. Why did he do this? Why is it that Jesus turned water into wine? And what was it about wine that caused this to be the first sign that Jesus wanted to show the world who he was, the inbreaking of his glory. Think about this. Jesus, <laughs> between this point and the end of his ministry, will have performed countless signs and miracles. And many of them, in fact, I would say almost all of them, are 
focused on providing for urgent needs that he sees in front of him, whether it's a healing from a disease or whether it's the, the freedom from a, an unclean spirit that is, is controlling a person or provision from a hunger because he provides food during a sermon or even protection for his disciples in the middle of a storm. These are real needs. They're not trivial things. And so why then does Christ, when he is going to bring his first sign into the world, why is it that he does not provide anything toward an urgent need, but instead provides merely wine at a wedding feast? Why not blindness? Why not paralysis? Why not a demon possession where he, 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 he removes an unclean spirit? Why is his first sign focused on a simple failure on the bridegroom's part for providing enough wine at his own wedding? Why did Jesus choose as the instrument for his glory to first break into our world wine? And I think that to answer that question, we probably should just ask a more basic question, a more fundamental question, and that is, why is there wine at all? Why does wine exist? Why did God allow there to be wine in this world? And God does not make this a secret at all. He tells us in his scriptures why wine exists. <laughs> David in Psalm 104, verses 14 through 15, tells us, to, speaking to God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So here's the reason. God gave man wine to gladden his heart. And to be clear here, this isn't referring to Welch's grape juice. This is a reference to real wine with alcohol in it. The word here for wine, both in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, and in the New Testament, is the same exact word used for wine throughout the, the scriptures, when uh, same words in both of the, those versions or both of those trans, uh, both of those translations and languages for strong drink or anything that can make somebody drunk, and we see this uh, same word pop up with the Bible's warnings against excessive drinking. So w wine here in the scriptures is clearly pictured as a gift from God, and this is consistent throughout all of the Bible. And further than that, it's a picture of God's own blessing for His people. Listen to this from Proverbs three. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. That's pretty clear. One of the responses of God to us honoring him with what he's given us in this life is blessing. And in this passage, the blessing is depicted with full barns, and with vats that are bursting with wine. So wine in the scriptures isn't viewed negatively. Um, it is viewed rather very positively, even though, and this needs to be said, there are many uh, proscriptions and limitations to how we should rightly enjoy wine in any strong drink. Nevertheless, in the Bible, it is a blessing. And so now going back to John 2, why is it that Jesus chose wine as the focal point for his first sign. How is it that Christ's provision of wine in this story during this wedding feast is a manifesting of his glory and his worth? 
And the answer is this. If wine is a gift from God, and wine is a sign of God's blessing to someone, then this first sign is a picture of the unrivaled excellency of the gift and blessing found in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. The picture in this wedding is of the unrivaled excellency of the gift and blessing that are found in Christ. There is no gift in the universe greater than Jesus. Now think about what happens here. First, the bridegroom's wine runs out in this wedding. He he simply does not have enough. The wine present at the wedding runs dry and this bridegroom is incapable to serve the guests at this feast. They will get no more wine if something doesn't change. And then we find out at the end of the story that even the wine that the bridegroom had provided was inferior to the wine that Christ provided. It was probably the best wine that this guy had. I mean, it was his marriage. And yet it was a poor comparison to to Christ's wine. And this means, this tells us that Christ is the superior bridegroom, for sure, which we looked at the first week, and that he provides ultimately the superior wine. The gift and blessing that we have in Jesus Christ is unrivaled, unequaled, unparalleled in excellency. There is nothing like Jesus, nothing. The wine that this world offers will run dry. The wine that this world provides us will fail us when we need it most. It is inferior in every single way. And this is why Isaiah 55, which which we read earlier, is so connected to the story in John 2. God is calling out to his people and he's telling them, the greatest need you have, I alone can provide. I I will give you the wine that I have. I will meet those needs. And he's saying this not only to his own people, but really to the entire world. Everyone who thirsts, everyone who thirsts, come. Christ, which is what the Spirit of God was holding out even when he was prophesying through Isaiah, Christ is the only wine that can satisfy. He is the only one who can cause our souls to truly live. This sign in John 2 isn't just about a miracle of turning water into wine. It's not just a trick. It's not just something that happens that's supernatural. It is showing us a massive contrast between two different wines, two very different wines. The wine of the world on one hand, and then the wine that Christ alone can provide on the other. One of them is always going to leave us empty. And the other will never fail to satisfy for those who drink it. This is why Jesus tells the servants in this uh, feast to bring the wine to the master of the feast. He is holding out the two wines in comparison. And he's saying, tell us which one truly satisfies. And the master of the feast is shocked. It's stunned. You can see this here. Uh, This isn't normally how it plays out at a wedding, he says. Normally at a wedding, the best wine is served first. And when people have drunk freely, then they bring out the poor wine. 
but Christ provides the best wine last. He has saved the best wine to the end. Even though the master of the feast is, is the one who thinks that the bridegroom, he, he thinks the bridegroom provided this, it's really Jesus. Because like we said in the first week at looking at this text, Jesus is the one true bridegroom. He is the one perfect and superior bridegroom. And one of the most stunning examples of this fact in, in the scriptures is not actually in the book of John, it's actually in the book of Mark. And it's an interesting story, seemingly uh, harmless, that deals with both wine and the concept of wine and the concept of a bridegroom. And it's this question that Jesus is asked in uh, Mark 2 about why his own disciples are not fasting when the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. Listen to this scene play out. John 2, 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him, came to Jesus and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Then he provides these analogies. He says, no one sews a, a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The, and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So Jesus is asked this question, what's the deal? Why is it that your disciples are not fasting? They're not abstaining from food like the disciples of John the Baptist or like the disciples of the Pharisees. What is the deal with this? And Jesus's answer is they don't fast because they have me. They have the bridegroom. The whole purpose of fasting in this world is to tangibly feel one's need for the one true bridegroom, Christ Jesus. That's why fasting exists. It's not just a spiritual exercise or ritual or some kind of asceticism. Fasting is about Jesus. And then to show this, Jesus uses these two illustrations. The second one involves wine. He says, if my disciples were to fast right now while I'm here with them, it would be like trying to pour new wine into an old wineskin and it would obliterate the wineskin. Because fasting only exists as a means for us to experience the longing that we should all have for Jesus, that we are desperately in need of him and fasting reminds us how much we need him. To not have the bridegroom in his fullness with us is like physically not eating. That's what fasting does. It shows us not having him with us is like starving. It's like not eating. So while Christ was with these men, it would have been foolish for them to fast because they were staring into the face of the only one in the universe who could satisfy their souls. The only one. And that's why 
<laughs> That's what John 2 is, is telling us in this story about the wedding feast. When the bridegrooms of this world have provided all of us their absolute best, it will run dry and it will always be inferior than what Christ alone can provide. So let's get real uh, for just a moment. If there's one thing that our world needs right now, there's one thing that our country needs the most right now in this moment, it is the only thing that can ultimately fix brokenness, and that's Jesus. Uh, if anything has become clear in recent history, especially in the last few weeks, is that our world is very broken. And the wine provided in all of the solutions of this world have failed us and have run dry. We live in a world, for example, where abortions are performed like minor medical procedures. We live in a world where women and little girls are trafficked every day because they are viewed as commodities and not beings who bear the image of God. And we live in a world and a country where there are still horrific displays of racial injustice, hostility and hatred towards people just because they look different than us, because they're of a different ethnicity and color. And it, it has been heartbreaking uh, for me, and I imagine for, for many of you, to, to witness these tragedies the past few weeks and the escalating animosity and the, the sorrow and the mourning that goes along with all of this. And if I'm honest with you, it's been challenging personally for me just to see and hear firsthand um, the fear that many of my African-American friends and brothers and sisters really in Christ around the, uh, around the country feel and simply should not feel and the fact that all of these horrible things that I just mentioned still exist is evidence that the wine offered by this world, the solutions to these problems in this world, will not have any lasting effect on these things. The solutions of this world are both temporary and they are inferior, just like the bridegroom's wine at this wedding. They may seem to work at some level, but they will always fail if hearts don't change. Now, don't get me wrong. We can and should, for each of these horrible things, pursue every possible means of stemming them, of stopping them, of bringing them to an end, whether we're talking about racism, whether we're talking about abortion, whether we're talking about human trafficking in this country and in the world. We should do anything we can. These are horrific atrocities against people who bear the very image of God. And we should do everything we can to fight against them and fight against the systems that perpetuate them in our world. But what is needed most in this world and what is needed in our country is the wine that Christ alone can provide. If hearts never encounter the beauty and the worth of Jesus, they won't change. They won't and hearts must change. The kind of evil we see in these horrible things isn't going to go away unless people encounter the one who gave his life to change hearts. 
And that's why the gospel is so precious. Think about this. To bring us this good wine, the God of the universe entered into the brokenness of human history. And he gave himself up so that all of these evils could be undone. Which is why Jesus himself, on the night that he would be betrayed and murdered, took a cup. And when he wanted to signify the cost of what he was about to purchase for his people, he used wine. Think about that. The first sign in Jesus' earthly ministry is revisited moments before he's going to give his life for his people. And he says to them as he holds out this cup, this is my blood shed for you. He's saying, I am the cost for your salvation. That's how much it's going to cost. It's going to cost me, the Son of God, in order for you to drink the good wine that I have for you, the wine of my glory and worth, the wine of my beauty and majesty. In order for that to happen, I have to pay for it with my own life. The cost of the wine we see in Isaiah 55 and the cost of the good wine that is intimated in John 2 is his life. We pay nothing for it, yet he gives everything for it. And that is the most amazing thing in the world. The source of the only true lasting satisfaction in the universe must be killed in order for mankind to be set free from killing each other. In order for mankind to be set free from self-destruction, the gospel is the good wine, and the gospel is the only thing that can truly change hearts in any real, lasting way. And I know looking at our world right now, looking at the turmoil and the struggle through this pandemic and just seeing the brokenness, it can bring about so many emotions and a feeling of hopelessness, but I just want you to know today that is not what you and I are called to. We are not called to hopelessness. We know that as long as evil remains in this world, it must be confronted by people who've tasted the wine of Christ. It must be confronted and um, the, the gospel who, which has changed us can still change other people. This is why God didn't take us out of the world when he saves us. He wants to show himself. The evil must be faced in this world by people who have drunk freely from the wine that only Christ provides and who've come to know that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy like Jesus Christ. And when that reality takes root, when, 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 the, when understanding that Jesus alone can satisfy the human soul, it creates a kind of people who are unwavering in their love for this broken world and will give their lives for the sake of others. Just like Christ, our bridegroom, gave his life for us. And because of what he's done on the cross, we know, we know, we can hope because we know there is a day coming very soon 
where hatred and malice and racism and every kind of injustice that you can think of against someone who bears the image of God will be gone forever. And in that day, Joel 3.18 tells us, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and the fount- a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. Isaiah 25 tells us, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples in this world, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people, you and I, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That day is coming. It is coming. And in seasons like this, with all that is going on in the world right now, and it may feel like this day is very far away, and it's a distant reality, and we shouldn't even think about it, but let me promise you that if you've received Christ, if you have received Jesus, I can guarantee for you that he has for you saved the best wine for last. As the master of the feast says, you saved the good wine until now. And so my plea for us today for Risen Hope and for really the the entire church is that we would embrace Christ and receive the wine of Christ by trusting him and that we would, in pursuit of change in this world, do whatever God calls us to do, but we would certainly come to him with fervent prayer, not only pleading for these tragic realities to come to an end, but asking him to give us the kind of lives that look like Jesus's. He gave his life to bring us this good wine. And now we are called to give our lives to bring the same wine to the rest of the world. That's what a Christian is. We, we, are, we are the servants who are, are bringing the good wine of Christ to a world that is in desperate and urgent need. And we are, alongside Isaiah, pleading for people to come and to drink that their souls may live. And so as we, during this next song here in the next few minutes, partake in the Lord's Supper, I would just ask that you consider just the wonder of what this wine points to. Let that hope grip you in this season and bring about change in your lives. Death will not have the last word. Racism, strife, malice, hostility, all of these innocent lives being killed, that will not have the last word. There is a day 
fast approaching where the violence that we see in this world every day will be a distant memory. And we will look into the face of the bridegroom. And just as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 25, we will say to Jesus, I have waited for you. I've waited for you. And in the warmth of his embrace, as he wipes away a a lifetime of tears, he will tell us, be glad and rejoice in my salvation. Come to me and drink freely the good wine that I've kept for you until now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your grace to buoy our hearts. We need your mercy to penetrate the deepest parts of our being and help us know how we can love our fellow man, how we can fight for the protection of of your image in this world on human beings, how we can glorify your name by giving our lives over to the purpose of seeking your glory in this world and your beauty in this world through not only justice, Father God, but through the redemption that is found only in this wine, the wine that Christ provides. There is no lasting solution. This will not end unless you stand forth Help us to proclaim your word. Help us to, 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 to communicate the reality of Christ to this world so that change infiltrates their hearts and brings about people who love you and show that love by loving each other, Father God. I ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.